Well, I'd like to welcome you, O future teachers of mindfulness meditation. I'm Tara Brock. And I'm Jack Cornfield. Warm greetings to you. To support you in your training, we've created a special podcast series of the best wisdom teachings from previous years of our teacher training. Now we know that sometimes simply listening and not having to watch a screen is a really good way to open, receive, and learn. The wisdom you'll hear is timeless. So while you may hear references to time, you'll easily connect with the truths that are being shared. May this rich selection of some of our favorite training sessions deepen your understanding of mindfulness and compassion and bring a new dimension to your teaching. We hope you enjoy these special recordings. Many blessings. Welcome everyone to the fifth live broadcast of our Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification Program. My name is Christy Peoples. I'm a producer here at Sounds True, and I'll be your host this evening. Tonight, Judson Brewer is broadcasting live from Worcester, Massachusetts, while the Sounds True team and I are all here in our Boulder studio. Judson Brewer, M.D., Ph.D., is a thought leader in the field of habit change and the science of self-mastery. Combining nearly 20 years of mindfulness training with his related scientific research, he's published numerous peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, he's spoken at international conferences, and he's trained U.S. Olympic coaches. Dr. Brewer has also been featured on 60 Minutes, TED, TED Med, TEDx, and his work was listed among Time Magazine's Top 100 New Health Discoveries of 2013. Dr. Brewer has also been featured in Forbes Magazine, Business Week, on the BBC, NPR, and others. He is the Director of Research at the Center for Mindfulness, and he's an Associate Professor in Medicine and Psychiatry at UMass Medical School. Welcome, Judson. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to have you with us, and we are looking forward to your presentation tonight. So take it away. Why don't we jump right in? Yeah. Uh, maybe we can start this with a story, as uh, everybody can see from this this first slide, there's a picture of, of two women taking a selfie at what some might recognize at the entrance of the Louvre. And I, I took this picture in 2014, which was the same year that Time Magazine named the selfie stick one of its top 25 inventions of the year. Uh, to me, it's a sign of the apocalypse. Um, but that social commentary aside, uh, we can imagine, um, we can use this as a way to kind of look at how our minds work and how we set up habits. And if we can understand how our minds work, we can start to learn to work with them. So what I'll talk about tonight is not only how our minds learn, but also how mindfulness uh, comes in and interacts with this process, both behaviorally and neurobiologically. So if we imagine these two women at the Louvre and they're sitting there thinking, wow, this is amazing. We're at the Louvre. Let's take a picture so we can keep this good feeling going. And then their brain steps in and says, no, no, I've got a better idea. Let's take a picture and post it on Facebook. Uh, so what happens? Uh, they go through the Louvre and how are they spending their time or their mental energy? Are they looking at the artwork or are they checking their Facebook feed to see how many likes they got? 
Uh, so we'll just keep this story in mind as we go through this and use this as a way to kind of describe and explain uh, how our minds learn. In the next slide, you can see, of course, the French do this in style, uh, vive la France. Uh, so I'll show on the next slide, there's actually a study that was done at Harvard in 2012 uh, where they basically simulated uh, Facebook feeds, where they gave put people in an fMRI scanner, and while they were scanning their brains, they gave them two options: one was to earn money, and another was to talk about themselves. And of course, uh, which one did they choose to do more? Well, the self-disclosure is pretty enticing. Uh, what they also found, as you can see in this picture of the brains on this slide, that when they were self-disclosing, they were activating a brain region called the nucleus accumbens, which is the downstream pathway of uh, dopamine that comes from the ventral tegmental area. And this reward-based learning process uh, pathway has been known to be activated uh, with every single known drug of abuse, whether it's alcohol, cigarettes, cocaine, heroin, or Facebook. Uh, and there was another study that found that you could actually predict the amount of time that people spend on Facebook based on how much their nucleus accumbens was activated. So there's something inherently rewarding about talking about ourselves. Uh, you can see on the next slide, there was another study done more recently with adolescents uh, using their own Instagram feeds. And what they had people do is view their own Instagram feed. And the only manipulation that the uh, that the researchers made was how many likes each picture got. And they could use those likes as a way to check to see um, how likes affected somebody's brain activity. What they also found was that the nucleus accumbens was activated. And there was another brain region that's involved in self-reference, which you can see here with these, this red circle um, the, that's a self-referential brain region called the posterior cingulate cortex that also got activated along with the nucleus accumbens. So there's something rewarding and something self-referential about this. And we're going to come back to the posterior cingulate in a few minutes. Uh, but in the next slide, you can kind of see this artist rendering of the summary slide of this, uh, this research so far. So there's something rewarding about getting these likes. So how did this process get set up? You can see in the next slide, actually it was the ancient Buddhist psychologist that had something to say about this 2,500 years ago. Uh, and we can think of there's a, a trigger that comes into our mind um, as depicted here by this brain. And then this gets interpreted as something that's either pleasant or unpleasant. So we're at the Louvre and it's really pleasant and we want that good feeling to continue. So this leads to a craving for the pleasant to continue. The same thing is true for unpleasant things. If we have something unpleasant happen, we want that to go away. So we push it away. So we think of this as craving and aversion classically. This leads to a behavior. So we take a picture, we post it on Facebook, and then we get a bunch of likes. And this lays down a memory that says, oh, do that again. Now, the ancient psychologists described this as the birth of a self-identity. In modern day, we think of this as memory. Now, there are a couple of important aspects here. One is you can see this loop here um, is described classically as using the term samsara, which many of you are probably familiar with, which literally translated means endless wandering. Because as we try to, to please ourselves and as we try to get away from unpleasant things, we just kind of perpetuate the process of doing these behaviors over and over and over. Another thing that I'll point out here is that uh, this process, which was known classically as dependent origination, was, the, was supposedly what the Buddha was contemplating on the night of his enlightenment. And to me as a scientist that says, oh, that means that's probably worth paying attention to. What was it that was so important that he learned that he became enlightened? Uh, by it. And another aspect of this, and depicted here with these glasses on the brain, uh, the, the 
first link of this chain of dependent origination is described as ignorance. Uh, in modern day, <laughs> the modern day version of this, we call this subjective bias. And what we mean by that is our, um, our current situation and our future is biased based on our previous actions. So when we do something, we're more likely to be biased toward doing that uh, behavior in the future. So this is whether it's ignorance, not seeing the world clearly, or whether we call it subjective bias in modern day, we're still not seeing the world clearly because we're seeing it through certain types of lenses. So for example, if I'm stressed out and I eat cupcakes and I feel better, then I start seeing the world through, oh, if I'm stressed out, I should eat cupcakes classes. Uh, the last thing I'll point out here is the sense of me or the sense of self is what uh, was very, very important and interesting uh, to the Buddhist psychologists. Now, it's interesting. This process is summed up very nicely in the next slide. Where uh, there's here's a quote from one of the Nikayas, uh, where it, the the saying is, "Whatever a person fre frequently thinks and ponders upon, thus will become the inclination of the mind." So it's interesting. They talk about this. We think of this as reward-based learning or this habit loop. The more we do this, the more this gets perpetuated. Or in modern day, I like this quote from Alan Watts, who says, ego, the self which he has believed himself to be, is a nothing but a pattern of habits. Now, if we look at this in modern day terms, we can also look to see where this plays out in uh, modern day life. And in the next slide, you can see the screenshot for a really interesting uh, Weight Watchers commercial, which I'd highly recommend that folks take a look at. And this, this commercial is set to the tune of, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. And when they go through this commercial, uh, in the next slide, you can see here this picture of a woman eating ice cream. They talk about, if you're happy and you know it, eat a snack. And they go on, if you're happy and you know it, next slide. If you're happy and if you're sad and you know it, eat a snack. And they show this picture of these people who are obviously not very happy. And they go on and talk about if you're bored and you know it, if you're stressed and you know it. And they end with, if you're human, eat your feelings, eat a snack. So I was blown away by this when I first saw this commercial. And actually, somebody had sent this to me from YouTube. And I talked to somebody at the at corporate in uh, Weight Watchers, and I said, you know, you guys have really nailed this habit loop. This is amazing. Why don't I see this commercial on television? And they said, um, well, it actually makes people depressed. <laughs> so, so, so we can really, you know, it, it, there's pretty good and consistent understanding of how this process is set up in modern day. The real question is, how do we work with it? So in the next slide, you can actually see how much of this has been worked out scientifically. Many of you might be saying, wait, isn't this positive and negative reinforcement? Yes, it is. So dependent originations actually uh, lines up very nicely with positive and negative reinforcement, which has been described in modern day for over a century. So for example, uh, B.F. Skinner became famous for showing positive and negative reinforcement in animal behavior experiments in the 50s. Eric Kandel got the Nobel Prize showing that this is evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slug. Uh, so this process is, is, is very, very well known, and it was probably set up so we'd remember where food is and so we'd avoid danger. So the important take-home piece here is it's really important to understand mechanism. If we can understand something mechanistically, we can work with it. So for example, I, I, I'm an addiction psychiatrist and I work with people with alcoholism. And there's this saying uh, for people who drink, if you avoid people, places, and things, you're less likely to drink, which makes sense. If we avoid the bars, if we avoid our drinking buddies, if we avoid those cues, uh, we're less likely to drink. 
with behaviors such as smoking, it's a little more challenging because we smoke, you know, we tend to smoke 20 cigarettes a day and, and all over the place. So we can't avoid our front porch. We can't avoid our car. We can't avoid our outside of our workplace. So there are these other treatments that come in, which we describe as substitute behaviors. So if you're jonesing for a cigarette, then you can eat some candy as a substitution and you're less likely uh, to smoke, which can help some people. Um, but ultimately, for a number of smokers, the average amount of weight that people gain uh, when they try to quit smoking is 15 pounds. So even these substitution strategies have some downsides to them. But the major thing I want to point out about this is whether it's avoidance of cues or providing substitute behaviors, we're not actually dismantling this habit loop at its core. And that's a really critical aspect. In the next slide, actually, uh, there's a saying from the Dhammapada from the Pali Canon, just as a tree, though cut down, can grow again and again if its roots are undamaged and strong. In the same way, if the roots of craving are not wholly uprooted, sorrows will come again and again. So they really highlight craving as a core piece of this process. I like this modern day interpretation a little bit more from Mick Jagger. Uh, <laughs> you know, I can't get no satisfaction. I, th I think we all get that. And in the next slide, if we really were to bring this down to its core elements, we can think of this reward-based learning as a trigger, a behavior, and a reward. So we get stressed out, uh, we eat some cupcakes or some chocolate, and we feel a little bit better. This perpetuates the process of reward-based learning. Now, again, if we can understand mechanistically how this works, this can give us a lot of power. And you can see in the next slide, there's this great expose in the New York Times a couple of years ago uh, where they talk about how junk food is actually uh, engineered now. So big tobacco back in the 80s, uh, they were busted by Congress uh, who said, you know, um, they, when they stood up in, in their congressional hearing saying that tobacco is not addictive, and in fact it was, so they started shifting their strategies and they actually bought up um, big food and then employed all of their engineers in to design foods that are very uh, addictive. So the Doritos, for example, here um, is this engineered entity. And for any of you that are familiar with the satirical journal, The Onion, I love that way they had a headline that said, Doritos celebrates as one millionth ingredient because this is an engineered thing. It's not really a not really a food, but it's designed to be the perfect shape, smell, color, taste, uh, and, and melting sensation in our mouth, as well as the crunch. So this, this information is really, really powerful. I'm going to show you in the next slide, poor Cookie Monster. Here's the summary of how all of this works. So just to bring this part of the talk to a close, it, it, there's a lot that's known mechanistically about habits are formed, whether it's eating, whether it's smoking, whether it's drinking, whether it's using Facebook, social media, or anything. This is a really strongly evolutionarily conserved process. So what can we do? You know, this is where the next slide bring this, brings our topic in tongue-in-cheek. Um, mindfulness, of course, paying attention might be something that we can bring to bear here. Well, as a scientist, I would say, well, that's actually an empirical question. Is it really true? And we can actually look to see, does mindfulness help change behavior? Uh, all of you are probably very familiar with John Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness, paying attention in the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally. I think of this as two elements where there's this awareness, but there's this attitudinal quality of awareness that's curious, that's open, that's not pushed or pulled by those positive or negative things. So we're not sucked into the pleasant things, wanting more, and we're not aversive or pushing away those negative things, wanting them less. We're, we're very equanimous, being with whatever is uh, being presented to us. 
So how well does this actually change behavior? In one of our early studies, as you can see on the next slide, we might be asking ourselves, well, how does paying attention actually help us change behavior? This might seem pretty paradoxical. So in one of our first studies with, uh, with smoking cessation, we randomized people to get mindfulness training or a gold standard treatment. And um, we said it, the, for the folks that got the mindfulness training, we told them to go ahead and smoke. And they looked at us like we were crazy. You know, the, the aim here was for them to quit smoking. And, and here we are telling them to smoke. Well, we told them to smoke in a particular way, which was to pay attention and see what, what, what they really experienced. And here's an example uh, from one of our participants. She said, mindful smoking smells like stinky cheese and tastes like chemicals, yuck. So this is really, really important. This was just bringing awareness to the situation, not telling herself that she should not smoke, but simply paying attention to what was happening. And the reason that we had people do this, this came straight out of the suttas, where we said, where you know, to summarize, um, and actually in the next slide, we can see a, a description of this. Uh, the Buddha is saying, I set out seeking the gratification in the world. Whatever gratification there is in the world, that I have found. I've clearly seen with wisdom just how far that gratification in the world extends. So he's actually talking about exploring gratification to its end, seeing what he actually gets. And as you can see, if we go back in the next slide to this reward-based learning paradigm, reward-based learning is based on rewards. So he's talking about paying attention very, very carefully to those rewards. And if those rewards aren't that rewarding, our behavior starts to change because reward drives behavior, not the behavior itself. So if we see that cigarettes don't taste very good, we naturally start to become disenchanted with them. Or as the sage Yogi Berra put it in my next slide, you can observe a lot just by watching. So we can help people start to become disenchanted with their behavior simply by paying attention to it as a first step. And once they become disenchanted, they start to build momentum and energy to ride out cravings. And here we can bring in standard practices such as uh, one that Tarbach has actually uh, popularized quite a bit, Rain, where people recognize, oh, that's a craving. They, they allow it to be there instead of pushing it away uh, and then start to get curious. Oh, what's this thing feel like in my body right now? And we use a slightly modified version uh, where we bring in some Mahasi style noting where we have people note from moment to moment to moment what those sensations in their body actually feel like. Oh, is it tightness? Is it tension? Is it burning? And they start to see that these are just physical sensations that come and go rather than something that's going to make their head explode, which some of my patients have actually said, oh, doc, I feel like my head's going to explode. And we can actually bring these right to the fore uh, using digital therapeutics, which I'll talk more about in a moment. But you can see we can put this right in the front and center and help people um, be able to write out their cravings right the moment that they have them. Now, how well does this actually work? Uh, in our first clinical study, which I won't go into all the details, we actually found that mindfulness training was twice as good as gold standard treatment at the end of treatment. And then it was five times better at our four-month follow-up. And I don't have time to go into all the mechanistic details, but as you can see from the next slide, uh, instead of providing avoidance or substitution strategies, this wedge of awareness comes in so we can be with these cravings and not act on them. And each time we do this, this starts to break the link between craving and the smoking or eating behavior. And so we can actually start to dismantle it at its core. 
And as I alluded to earlier, once we started to understand these mechanisms a little bit more, we could then say, okay, how do we actually disseminate this in a way that, that it becomes wide ranging so that it can be available to more people? And so you can see here, as I showed tongue in cheek in our next slide, yes, we are all addicted to our cell phones. So we said, well, can we actually deliver these types of trainings uh, through somebody's cell phone? As you can see in the next slide, we've actually started to develop digital therapeutics. We've got one for smoking called uh, Craving to Quit one for eating called Eat Right Now, as in Eat Correctly in the Present Moment, and, and one called Unwinding Anxiety, where we can even start to see those habitual anxiety habit pattern loops and start to unwind those as well. So just to give you an example of how we can package this evidence-based treatment into a, into a digital therapeutic, I'll just use the example of our Unwinding Anxiety program. We can actually give these gradual trainings. So instead of forcing people to come into our clinic once or twice a week, we can give them these trainings at their fingertips and they can uh, complete them whenever it's, uh, it's helpful for them. Uh, we can also uh, give these daily modules and modules in bite-sized pieces. So they take this 10 minutes a day, they can go back to old lessons and make sure they understand everything before they move on. We can also provide animations, uh, which I won't show you example of tonight, but ones that are very engaging and help explain and describe these processes so that they can really uh, understand them. Uh, and importantly, there are these in-the-moment exercises where folks can, in the moment that they've got anxiety or craving for a cigarette or craving for a sweet, uh, they can dive in there and, and practice exercises such as RAIN. And most importantly, uh, for a scientist like myself, we can embed experience sampling so folks can track their progress, we can track their progress, and we can test the efficacy. So that's an example of how these digital therapeutics are set up. And uh, I'll just walk through some of the data of seeing if these things actually work. So I don't know if any of you are familiar with Rufus Wainwright, uh, who sings in his song, Cigarettes and Chocolate Milk, if I buy jelly beans, it seems I have to eat them all in one sitting. So again, we can probably relate to this, this, this system where we start to get caught up in habit eating. Um, or stress eating or emotional eating. And we can provide these types of, uh, this type of training to people in a similar manner to I mentioned to that which I mentioned around uh, anxiety. Now importantly, what we look for is to see if people are actually walking the walk in terms of just parroting back uh, what we might be trying to teach them. So we have online communities where people can keep a journal, and then we can read their journals to see how they're actually doing and, and if they're actually changing their behavior. And I'll show you in the next slide. Here's an example of somebody who was going through our, our eating program. She said, I understand why I go to food to avoid or cover up or distract from uncomfortable feelings such as anger, sadness, or restlessness. Who wants to feel those things? Trigger, uncomfortable feeling. Behavior, eat something that temporarily diminishes that feeling. Reward, still have to deal with the unpleasant feelings, plus the sugar headache. I can clearly see how I got caught up in this habit loop trying to escape difficult feelings with food, but ultimately it doesn't work. So she's starting to describe disenchantment here. Uh, here's another example of uh, somebody using a RAIN exercise. She said, it's strange that relaxing into cravings makes them less powerful. I relaxed into it and it did pass after a while and I actually felt quite powerful to have survived that urge and let it pass without snacking. So we're gonna talk about intrinsic rewards in, the, in, in a little bit, but this just gives us a taste of, of how these can start to work. And also as a scientist, I wanna see that this thing actually works from a, from a clinical perspective. So one of my colleagues at uh, UCSF did a study, uh, her name is Ashley Mason, 
where she studied the app just to see if she could decouple that craving and eating, just like we'd seen decoupling of craving and smoking behavior. And as you can see in the next slide, this is a study that was just published uh, with a study of 104 participants. She actually found that there was a seriously significant reduction in craving-related eating when people went through this program. She also saw a significant reduction, you know, 36% in eating a cope with negative emotions. So they can start to break that loop between, you know, have a negative emotion, eat a cupcake to feel better, have that negative emotion, explore it, see what it feels like, and be with it rather than act on it. And that intrinsic reward of, of having this um, more control over our lives is actually pretty rewarding. I'll just show on the next slide. I love this quote. I really regret eating healthy today, said no one ever. So we can start to understand here now how these behavioral mechanisms are set up around habit formation and also how mindfulness can start to come in and break this link between craving and behavior. So what I'd like to do now is shift a little bit into um, the neurobiologic mechanisms of what's happening, and I'll start with a story. So there's this woman, uh, Lolo Jones, this amazing uh, Olympic hurdler, and she was actually favored to win the 2008 hurdles. And uh, in Beijing, in the finals at the ninth of 10 hurdles, uh, something really interesting happened. And in an interview with Time Magazine, she said afterwards, she said, um, I was just in an amazing rhythm. And then I knew at one point I was winning the race. It wasn't like, oh, I'm winning the Olympic gold medal. It just seemed like another race. And then there was a point after that where I was telling myself to make sure my legs were snapping out. So I overtried. That's when I hit the hurdle. So you can see here in this next slide that Lolo Jones, she had trained herself forever to, to win the Olympics. And it wasn't that she had thoughts. That's the critical piece here. It was that she got caught up in her thinking. She literally tripped herself up. So we can see in the next slide, what does this actually feel like, this caught up continuum? So if you think of daydreaming, uh, daydreaming, you know, if we get caught up in daydreaming and we're off and then somebody says, hey, pay attention, we wake up, we're not caught up anymore. In fact, 50% uh, of waking life, it's been shown, uh, we tend to be lost in the past and future in daydreaming. So this is a level of caught upness that happens rapidly, but then we can get out of it. Uh, pretty quickly. And it happens, uh, unfortunately, about 50% of waking life. Further along the spectrum, we can think of stress. When we get caught up in stress, it'd be great to say, hey, wake up, snap out of it. And then we weren't stressed anymore. That doesn't work so well. So we can think of stress as being caught up a little bit more where it's harder to let go. And of course, on the far end of the spectrum, addiction, where there's a simple definition of continued use despite adverse consequences. So whether it's uh, cigarettes or cell phone, social media, alcohol, cocaine, heroin, whatever it is, continued use despite adverse consequences where we know we're caught up in it, but we have absolutely no control and it's, it's wreaking havoc on our life. So this caught up continuum uh, is really important to pay attention to. And we can then also start to pay attention to what this actually feels like in our bodies. And there was a study uh, that was done uh, in in Europe a couple of years ago, where they actually gave people uh, basically a silhouette of a body. And then they said, you know, color it in uh, where you feel certain emotions as they did certain emotion inductions. And as you can see from the first one here, what does it feel like when we get caught up in fear? And what these people described was there was this hot spot right in their chest when they get caught up in fear. Now, what's it like when we get caught up in anger? Similar thing. We can see this hot spot in the chest. A lot of people described heat in their hands, um, you know, feeling it in their hands and also feeling it in their face. 
And what about things like anxiety? What's it feel like when we get caught up in anxiety? Same type of thing, right in the chest. So we can start to see this caught upness has a physical quality to it, physical, I would say, and even mental, where we feel this contracted quality to our experience. Now, if we go back, and I'll show you this next slide just to remind you of this adolescent study of, of Instagram, what's it feel like when we get caught up in this excitement, when we get a bunch of likes on Instagram or Facebook? There might even be similar qualities of, of getting caught up. So what's the opposite of getting caught up? We can think in, in the next slide, you know, what's the task of mindfulness training? Well, we can think of it as getting out of our own way or not getting caught up in ourselves. Uh, not getting caught up in, you know, in getting a bunch of likes or having people, you know, like us or, or whatever it is. Now, we did a study uh, to see what the neural mechanisms actually were during meditation practices. And the first, uh, the first finding that I can't show you was that there was actually no increase in brain activity when we looked across a number of different types of meditations. Uh, we looked at breath awareness, we looked at loving kindness, we looked at choiceless awareness, and when we did a conversion analysis, there was not a single brain region when we compared novice to experienced meditators that showed increased activity. So that was really puzzling to us. And we said, well, what's actually going on here? And then we started looking to see what brain regions were actually deactivated in experienced versus novice meditators. And as you can see here on the next slide, it turns out that there were, there were only four brain regions that were different between experienced and novice meditators. And blue means decreased activity in experienced versus novice meditators. And as you can see here, uh, in the middle of the slide, this posterior cingulate cortex, the same brain region that gets activated when we get caught up in likes um, from our Instagram feeds, gets deactivated during meditation. So I, that's, it's really hard to say that that's a coincidence. But in fact, when we found this, we weren't sure. So we wanted to confirm our results. And this is where we turned, as you can see from this quote from Richard Feynman, um, you know, he said, you know, scientists, you're so easy to fool yourselves. You've really got to be careful and not fool yourself. And I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a meditator. I was studying meditation. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't fooling myself. So I turned to, to a technique that one of my colleagues had developed at Yale uh, called real-time neural feedback, where in the next slide, you can see here, we can give people a baseline task. In this case, we show them a bunch of words and ask them if they describe themselves as a way to uh, standardize the baseline. And then we can give, have people meditate and we can show them feedback from their brain in real time while they're meditating. We can also give them dummy feedback to do the control experiments. I won't go into those right now for time. And as you can see on the next slide, what this looks like, you can imagine there's somebody laying in the fMRI scanner. They're meditating with their eyes open, and they're looking at this graph start to fill in over time as, uh, as they're meditating. So this is a three-minute run. And what we can do with both novice and experienced meditators, we can start to link up their subjective experience with their brain activity and cross this chasm between first-person science and third-person science. So as you can see here, there's a bunch of red and a bunch of blue in this novice meditator. And what we can ask them at the end of each run is, how well did that correlate with your experience? So when you saw red, did that correlate with your subjective experience of being caught up in something? And when the, the graph went down and decreased in PCC activity and went blue, did that correlate with your experience of being on task? In this case, we were using a breath awareness meditation. And we could ask them, how well does that correlate? And as you can see, this correspondence score 
um, they reported roughly eight out of 10, as in this was very, very highly correlated with their experience. As you can see on the right side of this graph in these experienced meditators, not only did they report about the same level of correspondence, but look at their brains. These brains activity patterns are vastly different. There's a lot more blue, a lot more deactivation in these, in these posterior cortices of the experienced meditators. So we can look at this a little bit more and ask, well, what's actually going on here? As you can see in the next slide, we can start to dissect these runs one by one. So we have somebody meditate and we have them report on every little bit that happened right afterwards. So this is a one minute run because it's actually hard for experienced meditators to remember what's actually happening while they're meditating. So you can see here with this first bubble, this person said, at the beginning, I caught myself. I was trying to guess when the words were going to end. That was the baseline period. And when the meditation was going to begin. So I was trying to be like, okay, ready, set, go. And then there was an additional word that popped up. And I was like, oh, shit. And there's this red spike you see there. And as you can see in the next section, he said, and then I sort of immediately settled in and was really getting into it. You can see that corresponds with the brain activity going down. And then he said, oh my gosh, this is amazing. It's describing exactly what I'm saying. And then you see that red spike. So he's getting excited. He was getting caught up in his experience. And then in the next part, he said, okay, don't get distracted. And then I got back into it and got blue again. And then in the last part, he said, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. It's doing exactly what my mind's doing. And so he was laughing at this point. He said, it got red again. And so I find it really funny because that's to the next question. That's a perfect map of what my mind was going through. So these types of tools help us start to line up these brain activities activation regions with subjective experience in a very, very interesting way. So I'll just show you some examples of things that were kind of serendipitous, things that people weren't expecting. So here's an example of somebody's brain region of their posterior cingulate getting activated. He said, I worried I wasn't using the graph as an object of meditation, so I tried to look at it harder or somehow pay attention more. This is when it actually went red. So this is interesting. How many times do we spend all this energy trying to concentrate, trying to meditate, when in fact, meditation isn't about forcing anything. Yet, uh, sometimes, some, at least this is the way I learned, was, you know, I just got to grit my teeth and get through it. Uh, here's some other examples in the next slide. This person said, toward the middle, I had some thoughts, which I don't see on the graph, maybe because I let them flow by. Again, it's not, this suggests it's not the thoughts themselves. It's that relationship to the thoughts when we get caught up in them. Here's another one that said, I noticed that the more I relaxed and stopped trying to do anything, the bluer it went. Now, oh, now I understand to the next slide what Yoda was talking about. This is not about trying or forcing anything. This is simply about doing do or do not. There is no try. So we ask ourselves, okay, this is great. We can learn a bunch of stuff neurobiologically, but what's actually happening that it, that, and what are we learning from this that will bring it to clinical utility? I'm a, I'm a clinician. I want to see this stuff actually get into the clinics to help people. So the next slide, um, what we're starting to do now is be able to give people feedback from their brains in real time using EEG source estimation neurofeedback. And the way this works is we can actually take a big array of, of EEG electrodes and estimate a specific brain region and give people feedback from that. As you can see on the next slide, we had somebody come into our lab to actually test this out with us. As some of you might recognize this guy uh, in the screen here. Um, and on the next screen, uh, this is a picture, a better picture of Anderson Cooper uh, when we hooked him up to our, our EEG array. 
And what we had him do was we had him do a couple of different things. And, and you can go and find this on YouTube. There's a one minute excerpt from the 60 minute episodes. So it's really pretty fascinating. The first thing we had him do was uh, get anxious. And as you can see in the next slide, there's this green, these green lines, which are just the baseline period. But this red part was when we said, think of something that was anxiety provoking. And he thought of it and this thing went off the charts, uh, red. And then we said, okay, just drop into paying attention to your breath. And as he dropped into meditation, you can see his brain region completely changing in real time. So here, this is very promising in terms of, you know, in the next couple of years, being able to provide some type of evidence-based and mechanistically driven uh, neurofeedback tools to provide people a mental mirror of what their minds are going through. So they can see what it feels like and line that up with, um, you know, with their brain activity when they're really getting contracted in stress or trying to force themselves to meditate. And in fact, um, what their brain is showing when they're actually relaxing and just resting in an even keeled awareness. And this can even to the next slide, bring this back to reward based learning. So if, if we think of triggers, let's say stress is triggering some behavior, whether we're getting caught up in anxiety or eating cupcakes or smoking cigarettes, and then that temporary relief that comes from that distraction, what if in fact we, we hacked into this process and said, you know, if, if the trigger is stress, what if that behavior can be curiosity or bringing a kind, curious awareness to our actual physical sensations of what's happening in our experience right now? Now, that behavior is interesting because, one, that awareness is always available. We don't need something outside of ourselves to feel better. We don't need to eat something or do something to feel better. It's, it's always available. And also, these rewards are somewhat different. So this, this reward of getting something to feel better might even feel different than when we're curious or we're exploring our experience in a curious manner. So, for example, fear tends to feel like this contracted quality. Well, what does joy feel like? Joy tends to feel more expanded. And in fact, if we can tap into curiosity, this kind, curious awareness, that too can feel expanded and become its own intrinsic reward. Well, is this actually true? I'm going to show you a couple of examples uh, to, to sum this up at the end. But another way that we can think about this and, and help people learn these processes, uh, one way that we've been uh, kind of summarizing this reward-based learning is through what we describe as these three gears of awareness. So if you think of driving a car, riding a bicycle, this first gear is awareness of being caught up in habit loops. So this is how I teach my, the participants in our groups is, you know, you can pay attention to the trigger, you can pay attention to the craving, the type of behavior, and even, even that reward. And in fact, we can zoom in on that reward and we think of this as shifting into second gear. So this is exploring those results of our behavior. As we go back to the Majjhima Nikaya talking about these types of rewards, exploring gratification to its end, we can ask the simple question. And I actually learned this question uh, from a meditation teacher. Ask that simple question, what do I get from this? What's that cause and effect relationship? And as we start to explore this, we become disenchanted with behaviors that might be contracting or leading to uh, untoward outcomes. And we might become more um, in tune with things like generosity and kindness uh, and gratitude and things that help us uh, expand because that actually feels much better than that contracted quality of, of getting caught up in some other behavior. And we think of third gear once we build this momentum is stepping out of this habit loop. So we can use rain uh, practices. We can breathe into our anxiety. We can use loving kindness practices. All of these things that bring awareness to the immediate moment help us be with it in a balanced way 
uh, rather than being pushed off keel or trying to get away from things or trying to change things. So again, is this really true? Well, this is where we go back to the participants and the, and the folks that are actually learning these programs and see what they're saying. So here's an example uh, from somebody who was using our smoking cessation program. He said, I'm somehow able to ride out the craving pretty quickly. I think of it as some kind of new habit loop. So he's describing this habit loop. I go from wanting a smoke to either automatically recalling the bad sensations or automatically connecting the cigarette with more fuel for my addiction. So starting to see that process really clearly helps him become disenchanted and helps him ride out these cravings. Here's another example uh, from somebody in our mindful eating program. Uh, she said, what's most interesting to me is how we define the rewards. In the past, the reward of eating right had been weight loss, but it was more often than not short-lived because I hadn't made real process changes in my daily life. Here, it feels like the reward is defined differently and weight loss is a side effect. The reward here is for a lack of a better expression, a more balanced life or inner peace. It's a beautiful description of these intrinsic rewards that come with paying attention. Uh, here's somebody from our anxiety program uh, who said, my relationship with anxiety has completely transformed over the past four weeks. I used to think of that anxiety was me. So, so identified with anxiety that it was deeply etched in their bones, like one of our participants said. Um, she continued, I still feel anxiety coming, but as a body sensation and not as a thought. So, it's learning to differentiate this is me versus this is something that's happening to me. And as she finished, and that makes all the difference. Uh, here's one other example of somebody who had major panic attacks. He said, um, when I had a full-blown panic attack, looking inside made it just melt away. So bringing these awareness practices to the panic attacks just to help them ride out those, those full-blown panic attacks. I was looking at what I was feeling instead of obsessing over why I was feeling it. So instead of getting caught up in, oh no, here's a panic attack, just looking at what someone's feeling helps us really step out of it and not get caught up in that loop. So just to summarize um, what I hope that you've gotten a little bit of a taste of uh, right from this lecture is not only how these, you know, how our minds work a little bit through habit formation, through reward-based learning, but also how mindfulness steps in on a behavioral level where it helps break that link between craving and behavior. And also on a neurobiologic level where we can find brain regions and networks that are associated with that getting caught up and also letting go. And we can use those as a mental mirror to potentially even help people see more clearly what their subjective experience is and line it up with their brain activity so it helps them look inside in ways that they can't uh, do otherwise. You can't pop your head open and say, oh, you're meditating correctly or not. But this mental mirror can help start to give a, a sense of that. So I'm just going to go to the next slide and say um, there are tons of people both here at UMass as well as collaborators at Yale and across the world who helped with this work. Most importantly, our participants who literally donated their brains to help us with the study. And of course, a lot of the funding came from the National Institutes of Health. So please write your Congress people and tell them to keep funding the NIH. And I know I went through this pretty quickly. Um, so I'll end with something completely self-referential, which is I write a lot about uh, this stuff in, in my book that came out uh, in 2017, which is, is, which is the craving mind. Uh, so I'd be happy to stop there and, um, and dive into some questions. Okay. Thank you very much. So our first question comes from Rajiv who writes, 
Uh, Judson, can you speak to any research done around working with addictions to sex? Great question. Uh, we haven't done any of that research ourselves. I can say that we've had a number of people use uh, I th mostly our Craving to Quit program to help them with porn addiction um, because it's the same type of habit loop. Um, and research-wise, we haven't done any formal studies on that, uh, so I can't speak specifically to it, but I can say that that's, that process is the same type of learned behavior. You, we can think of eating and sex as the two strongest evolutionary drives uh, to keep humanity going. So certainly it, it plays right into the same things that I was talking about in this lecture. Okay. You know, I want to uh, just pause for a moment and invite the participants to submit any questions that you might have uh, at this time. And you can do so by entering them in the field right below this video. Okay, so our next question comes from uh, someone who uh, didn't share their name, but they write, even if, <clears throat> excuse me, even if we aren't over the hump, how would you suggest using our own struggles with addictions to help others address theirs? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> and I think we all have to take an honest look at ourselves to say, how much do we think we're actually over the hump and start looking at all the different behaviors <laughs> that we might be addicted to. So I totally can relate to that. <clears throat> I think it's really, really helpful to be able to uh, really see our own struggles in a way uh, to be able to relate to others, be able to help them. So I would say one place to start, you know, I think of this as that second gear that I was talking about is really explore, you know, okay, here I'm caught up in something. Uh, can I map out that habit loop in that first gear moment? And can I just simply ask myself, what do I get from this? What am I getting from this behavior? So we can really see experientially. So I'm not talking in a cognitive way, like in a thinking way, oh, I know I shouldn't do this, but more in a way like, oh, what does this feel like in my gut when I do X, Y, or Z? That simple question, what do I get from this, is tremendously powerful and can help us start to see what it feels like ourselves to become disenchanted from any type of behavior. And that gives us the experiential wisdom to be able to then convey this and help others with their own with their struggles. You know, I've had a, several teachers tell me, you know, speak from or teach from your own experience. You really can't go wrong there. And I think that that advice is golden. Um, so in that sense, the more experience we have with our own behaviors, our own habits, the more wisdom we're going to develop and be able to help others as well. Can you speak a little bit to how we might use these practices to help heal a family dynamic of, you know, say self-sabotage or kind of the crabs in the bucket kind of system that keeps repeating on itself for generations? Yeah, that's a such a great it's a, such a great question. I think I think the first place to start is with ourselves. Right. So the, whenever the shoulds come out, that's a disaster. Oh, you should do this. You should do that. You shouldn't do that. So it's really a, an opportunity to look at ourselves to see when we're, we're leaning in and, you know, just waiting for our turn to talk or to argue or to talk over or to, you know, to try to force our way. And we can step back and ask ourselves, well, what am I getting? from this relationship when I'm trying to force my point of view or trying to be right all the time and start with learning a little bit of humility ourselves and learning about our own habitual patterns, which I find is very helpful in helping me identify these habit 
you know, the, literally these habit patterns in relationship. And it's like, oh, it's, I'm not separate. There's this thing, same thing is happening in my relationship with my partner or whatever, and in a larger scale. And this, and then it, the whole thing blows open and we can start to see, oh, oh, well, the same thing is, is at play here. And we can, and then it gives us more, um, more wisdom to be able to deal with that, not only from our own experience, but seeing how the whole system plays itself out uh, in, in these family or societal units. I don't know if that gets at your question, but I think it's a, it's a really good one. Mm. Um, and I'd like to just ask you to say a little bit more about humility, too, because I think I heard you touch on that in your response, yeah. you know, more compassion, more spaciousness around people's struggles. But I feel like there's a little more in there that uh, we can tease out from that. Yeah, let's do it. So if you think of humility, um, so that uh, if we go back to even back to dependent origination, that's getting caught up in our attachment to a view, right? And stated pretty clearly, you know, attachment to views causes suffering. So if we think I'm right all the time, we can ask ourselves, well, what do I get from this? How helpful is this? And then we can step back and instead of having to point out how we were right for the umpteenth time, if we were, or even if, you know, let's assume that, that we were right sometime. How helpful is it to point it out, to rub somebody's face in, you know, oh, see, I told you so, as compared to like being humble and, and seeing what's actually helpful to do in the moment. And I can promise you, at least in my experience, pointing out if I was right about something doesn't actually help. We can just move on and work together. And it, it's not about, oh, look, I'm right. Let's keep score and all of this stuff. So I see humility, one, as not being caught up in this, this sense of self. And also humility, it, to me, feels like much more freeing. Like we don't have to be right. We don't have to protect anything or, or have some view or, or show that we're, you know, like on the man or whatever. It doesn't matter um, it, because the humility feels much better. It's like, okay, great. What's the most skillful thing to do right here in this moment? Thank you. This one comes from Daphne, who writes, Functional MRIs are awesome, but how does this translate out of the lab? And what do you see as the options for application here? That's a great question. So I think of this as, and we're actually doing a study right now uh, that's funded by the NIH to actually see if we can use neurofeedback as a way to help uh, people who are just beginning to learn to meditate. So in our MBSR programs here at the Center for Mindfulness, as people get into their third week of practice and they're just learning the body scan, they're just learning breath awareness, can we help them uh, see what it feels like when they're trying to meditate and give them feedback to say, okay, what's that feel like when you're trying to meditate? Which helps provide feedback uh, that, that kind of skips the middle person, you know, like the teacher has to interpret what they're saying and then they have to interpret what the teacher is saying. Um, in fact, we can just jump right to their brain activity and say, okay, you know, let's use this as a way to calibrate your experience. And the more quickly they can calibrate that, um, the more they can go out into the world and use their own, their own experience as their feedback machine. They don't need some fancy fMRI machine or an EG neurofeedback machine, but these might be helpful as people start to learn practice, for example. But it, it's, you know, I think Daphne's question is a really good one. The aim is not that this is going to be some, 
you know, that we're going to be dependent on some machine in order to get enlightened. That's not the case at all. These might just be able to augment um, the training in which, you know, some of the challenges are around getting accurate feedback around our own experience. Some of it being that we can't even describe our own experience, especially when we're beginners. And so we can skip the description and we can go right to what's actually happening and then start to calibrate our own experience from that. Nick writes, do you feel that mindfulness works better than 12-step programs for addressing addictions? Good question. And I, the short answer is I don't know. I haven't compared them head to head. I think 12-step uh, is, is very helpful for a lot of people in, in our own studies, whether it's alcohol, cocaine dependence, or smoking, have shown um, that mindfulness is, is helpful for a lot of people. So I would say I don't know. It's a good question. And I don't know anybody that's actually doing that head to head study right now. So uh, this would be something that folks would just have to try for themselves and see what works. Jed, can you talk a little bit about the connection between um, hormones and our fluctuation in um, awareness and presence? Because I know that, yeah. Yeah, a great question. And I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's not my area of study. Uh, and there's probably a lot going on. And I wouldn't even begin to, to know how to answer that question. So it's a good one. And I'm sorry, I'm going to punt mm -hmm. on that one. Okay. All right. Uh, Laura writes, can you please speak to what we know, if anything, about how important a sustained mindfulness practice is to long-term recovery from addiction? So if mindfulness practice is helpful in kicking the habit, what happens if our mindfulness wanes? <laughs> well, old habits die hard. And I think that saying is a truism. So it's just like, you know, working on a muscle or training for a marathon. Uh, if we've trained for one marathon and then we don't run for 10 years, the likelihood of us running another marathon the next day is probably not that great. And I think the same is true for awareness. Uh, one of the nice things here is these intrinsic rewards that come from paying attention they're pretty nice. And so the, I would say, you know, it's very interesting. We get to explore this ourselves, but I'll just speak from my own experience. The more um, I become aware on a more continuous basis, the, <laughs> the happier I am. It feels pretty good to not be caught up in my own stuff. And so it seems that this process can start to get going in a way that it, um, it's self-perpetuating in a way that's, that's effortless, right? It doesn't take a lot of work to do. So here, I think it really uh, depends on this tapping into these intrinsic rewards and seeing what that joy feels like when we're present with something and we're not caught up in that push and pull. And that in itself starts to drive itself. Uh, the other thing I'll add to that is in one of our studies, we were really surprised when we looked at formal versus informal meditation practices. We found, you know, I went in fully expecting that it would be formal meditation practices that would correlate with outcomes. In fact, they did to some degree, but it was in fact the informal practices that drove the majority of the results, which was a, wow, that's interesting. And, and it turned out, you know, we could, we could rationalize anything. So I'm going to rationalize this one. <clears throat> In the moment when somebody was smoking a cigarette, 
when they found that they could bring a mindfulness practice right there, they were actually uh, um, not perpetuating that habit loop right in that moment. Whereas when they were sitting down on their meditation cushion, they're less likely to be uh, smoking or out on a smoke break anyway. And so this in-context development of the mindfulness training uh, really seemed to help them develop these practices. And there's actually a, a saying from the, the Tibetan tradition, short moments many times. So we, when we saw that result, we started baking that right into our app-based training to see if that was actually true. And we actually start with these short informal practices right in somebody's busy everyday life. And as they start to see how their minds work, as they start to get the rewards of writing out cravings, then we bring in these formal practices that help support them and help them uh, go to another level. But we, you know, we flip that formal to informal, starting with these informal practices based on what our data were showing us. And it turned out to make quite a bit of sense, at least for folks that are in the beginning of meditation practice. Pamela writes, has your research applied to children? And if so, what have you found? Is it any different from your work with adults? Great question. And my research hasn't, we haven't specifically done research in children. The closest that we've done is uh, we did a smoking study with adolescents, uh, with teen smokers. Uh, I know there's a lot of great work, research that's being done with uh, children, uh, but none of that has been done by, by my lab. We've mostly focused on adults with addictions. This one is uh, from Anonymous, who writes, is there a certain amount of time that a person should be meditating during the day to really work through their addictions? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I've turned more to the quality over quantity question. Uh, so a lot of people have been trying to explore, you know, what's the minimum amount of time that I have to practice? Well, this gets into the have tos. Oh, I should practice this amount and then I will get this. Well, that's actually a habit loop where we can fall into that. So I think I would just urge folks to be careful about um, falling into to that type of a trap. I'm not suggesting that, that anonymous is suggesting this, but it's something that I've seen quite a bit. So here, we're really focused on the quality of practice. So for example, I grew up playing the violin. And if I learned to play my violin, play my scales out of tune, it was actually worse than not practicing at all. So in this case, I think the same thing applies to mindfulness. It's about the quality of practice of being there right in the moment. Uh, even for a, for a few moments is much more helpful than like sitting there and, um, you know, sitting on the cushion for 30 minutes and, and daydreaming for 30 minutes, for example. So here I would emphasize the quality over the quantity. And that quality actually may change the trajectory even more than the quantity of practice. Of course, I'm not saying um, more is bad. I'm just saying that more good is more good. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yes. Uh, <laughs> speaking of the quality of the meditation, can you talk a little bit more about that? Are we doing a simple breath meditation? Are we counting down? Are we visualizing? Um, what exactly is a good quality meditation? This is such a great question that this, I ended up writing my entire book about this because I was so fascinated with this question, both from my personal practice and experience, from my research, from my clinical. It turns out, 
uh, and this is our working hypothesis, so it certainly could be updated if, if it turns out not to be true. But we're looking more at the, the contraction versus the expansion quality of experience, no matter what the practice is. So I was really blown away when we saw these three different meditation practices that were all showing similar results with this brain region, the posterior cingulate cortex. And that brain region ended up being you know, involved with contraction versus expansion. And so we started exploring that more. And it, it looks like you know we've studied... Christian contemplative, Zen practitioners, Tibetan practitioners, you know, all sorts of practices, everything from gratitude to curiosity. And that contraction versus expansion seems to be a universal element here, no matter what the practice is. So it's really nice because it's like, it doesn't privilege one practice over another. And it also helps people find what's most useful for them in any one moment. Uh, and I've certainly gone through cycles of different types of practices throughout my, my practice history. And I think this is also, this also can be true for many of us where it's really looking at, you know, my forcing or am I, you know, am I dropping into my experience and having uh, this quality of, of almost effortless awareness is, is the way that some of us describe that. So, so there it's about that, you know, contraction versus expansion, no matter what the practice is, rather than the practice itself. Joe asks, would you mind sharing how your research has influenced your own meditation practice? And is there a particular skillful means that you're using currently that you'd be willing to share with us? But it's a great question. I would start by saying it's really helped hone in on this question of, of contraction versus expansion. So, you know, I, I, boy, you should see all the books I have on my bookshelf when I was really trying to figure out what meditation was and what, you know, these absorptive concentration practices were and how I could do all of this stuff. And it really started to simplify and simplify and simplify, um, which, which really lined up well with our research around, you know, this contraction versus expansion. So, you know, the, the thing that I would share with folks uh, is probably two things. One is, you know, let's see how much we can calibrate our own experience around c contraction versus expansion. And that's tremendous. I find that so helpful. Every, every moment that I can drop in and see, am I contracting or am I expanding? And what are the conditions that are supporting this? So if I'm yelling at somebody, it tends to be this, oh, that's painful. When I'm, you know, joyful or, or sharing a moment with somebody where I'm really connected, it feels like this, oh, that feels really good. Um, so I can learn and, and my brain starts to, you know, calibrate around, oh, less of this, more of this. Naturally, I don't have to do anything about that. And the other thing that can support that is curiosity. So curiosity, and this, this is not some magic thing. This is, we wrote a paper about this and it actually turned into a chapter in my book around how these factors of awakening, there are these seven factors of awakening. And the first, and they are taught sequentially in the Anapanasati Sutta, where you bring awareness and you bring interest or uh, uh, curiosity together. And you just like, you rub these two sticks and they start to create friction and then energy arises, which is the third factor. And then joy, which is the fourth and then tranquility and then concentration and then equanimity. All of this stuff arises simply out of the conditions of being aware and curious of so bringing that attitude and quality in. So that's the other thing I would share is, is let that curiosity rip, let it rip. 
All right. Well, and <laughs> and with that, we've uh, ripped right to the end. <laughs> um, thank you so much for that, Justin. It was really fascinating. And we didn't get to all the questions. And um, that was awesome. Well, thank you. This is really fun. <laughs> this concludes the fifth live broadcast of our Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification Program. Thank you again, Judson Brewer, for this outstanding presentation. And thanks to everyone who joined us tonight as well. We really appreciate your questions. For Sounds True, I'm Christy Peoples, thanking you so very much for being with us.